and we are in chapter 19, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. If you need a Bible, there's one on the table. Good to have Faye with us again. How you feeling, girl? Pretty good. Pretty good, aren't you? That's great. Yeah, we're glad you're here. And uh, Dolly Culp's back, the general. She's come back. You had not given me any orders yet today. Good to have you back, Dolly. Okay, we're in uh, John chapter 19. Now, last week I quoted the Apostles' Creed, so I'm sure everybody knows it now. <coughs> uh, but I'm only going to quote the last part of it. So you know what it is. It says, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, He rose from the dead, and He ascended into heaven, from whence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, last week we talked about his death. This week we're going to talk about the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, just off the top of my head, I've never heard an entire sermon on the burial of Christ. And yet, the Apostle Paul, when he defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5, he says, I deliver unto you that which I first received. The gospel, the good news of how Jesus died for our sins and he was buried and the third day he rose from the dead. This was part of the creed that uh, Paul, part of the what Paul called the essence of the gospel. The burial of Christ is part of the essence of the gospel. We think of his death and resurrection, but we never preach on his burial. And the Apostles' Creed says he was dead and he was buried. And the burial was part of the creed of the early church. And I wondered why we avoid the burial of Christ. And you know, they bury people who are dead, and that's one of the evidences that you're dead is that they buried you. Well, today we're going to look at the burial of Christ, and then we're going to take a little bit of time and we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. Now, Jewish criminals who were executed were usually thrown in common graves. They were not given the dignity of being in a even a family plot because they were considered a criminal, especially if you were crucified. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, uh, the Old Testament said. And therefore, those people were considered cursed, and they were put in some sort of common grave. But two men uh, come to Jesus' aid. This would have been Jesus' fate had not two men come to his aid and rescued him from being buried in that way, and they give him a proper burial. So we're going to look at those two individuals, and you'll find them in verses 38 and 39 of the Gospel of John, or, uh, chapter 19. So look at the first one. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, after what? After Jesus died, there came a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Arimathea is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He's there for the Passover feast, the Passover festivals. Uh, then the second man is found in the next verse, verse 39. It says, and Nicodemus, and you know who he is. He's the guy who came to Jesus by night. We saw his story back in John chapter 3. So let's look at these two men and what they did. First of all, let's look at Joseph of Arimathea and look how he's described. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, look at this, being what? A disciple of Jesus, but look at the next words, but secretly. He was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And why was he a secret disciple of Jesus Christ? For fear of the Jews. Do you see that? That phrase is used in another place in John's Gospel. Do you remember where it was? Remember the man who was healed, who was blind? And they questioned his parents. And his parents said, well, we don't know how he was healed. We don't know who healed him. And it says they said that for fear of the Jews, that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. Because the Jewish leaders said that anyone who proclaimed Jesus as Christ would be kicked out of the synagogue. And they were afraid of that. Now we have another man, a man of stature, I might add, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And I think there's, every one of us can relate to this man, where we have been fearful to give an open testimony of Christ. When we were around skeptics and things like this, we just kept our mouth shut, rather than open our mouth and be bold. And uh, so I can relate to this man. And I was a professor of evangelism. But still, it's a fearful thing to take a stand for Christ, especially amongst people who are, you know, aggressively against Christ. Now, we also see he was a man of status. Because look what the next part of the verse says in verse 38. It said, he, he asked Pilate, that's the governor of Judea, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Now, you just don't walk into the governor's mansion and ask permission of him to take away the body of Jesus unless you're somebody. You have to have status. You have to be a person of importance. John doesn't tell us who Joseph Arimathea is that would allow him to walk right into a governor's mansion. I know I can't get into the governor's mansion. Now, some of you can. I can get in with you. But I can't get in there because the governor doesn't know me. I'm not a person of status. So... We don't know who he is from John's Gospel, but we do know from Luke's Gospel. And I want you to see this. I think it's worth turning there. It's going to go back a few chapters to Luke chapter 23. We will see that he's a man of status. High social status. And I want to make an analogy about this. Look at Luke chapter 23. And look down at verse 50. This is Luke's version of Jesus' burial. Luke 23 and verse 50. It says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph. Now look at this. A council member, a good and just man, he had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and he wrapped it in linen, wrapped it in the, put it in the tomb. It was hewn out of rock where no one had ever lain before. So from this passage, we see something about Joseph of Arimathea. First of all, we see he was a council member. You see that in verse 50? That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. These were the people who ran the nation of Israel, the Jewish leaders of Israel. There were 70 council members. That was an elite club, more elite than the United States Senate. We have 100 senators. Let me tell you, that's about as elite as you get in this country. Now, you have nine Supreme Court justices that are appointed for life. That's a little more elite. 
The presidency, of course, is the highest office in the land, but this man is a leader of the Jews. He's part of what we would call their, their, their senate, if you will. Now look what else we know about him according to this passage of Scripture in verse 51. He was a good man and he was a just man. He cared for justice. Watch this. Verse 51. He had not consented to their decision indeed. They wanted to kill Jesus, and when it came time for the vote, guess who the dissenting vote was? Joseph of Arimathea. Now we know from John's Gospel why. He was what? A secret disciple. No one knew it. Probably his family didn't know it. Know it, But he was following Jesus. He's keeping up with the news. He saw something in Jesus. He thought maybe he was the Messiah. So that is who this man is. From Arimathea. And look what else it says at the end of verse 51. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. This means that he was part of that remnant in the first century who actually believed that God was going to set up his kingdom on earth and defeat Rome. We know from Luke's gospel that Anna, the prophetess, I think in chapter 1 or 2, was in that same category. And so was Simeon, the old man who blessed the baby Jesus. It says those two people were also just people waiting for the consolation of the kingdom of God. So this is a pious man who was part of the Jewish remnant that really believes that God's going to come and set up his kingdom. And that's the man who goes to Pilate and asks to take the body of Jesus. So go back to John's Gospel. I hope that was worth at least looking at that passage. So, by the way, this goes to show you that the majority, when the majority rules, it's not always right. 69 to 1, 69 to 2. You see that it's going to be another man probably voted against this as well. And it's going to be this next man that we are introduced to. So anyway, at the end of verse 38, it says, So he came and he took the body. He got permission. Pilate respected him. Gave him permission. And he took the body. Now the second man, Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night. Now what do we know about this Nicodemus? Well, we know he came to Jesus by night. The pastor talked about it this morning. And uh, he said, we know you're a teacher come from God. And he said, well, you really can't know that unless you're born again. And Nicodemus evidently walks away discouraged. But then he's mentioned again in chapter 7 of John's Gospel. And I want you to turn there. This will be the two times we turn this morning. Uh, and I don't like to turn too often, but I think this is another time where it pays off. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 7. This is the second time we find Nicodemus. And look down at verse 45. John chapter 7, verse 45. This is when the high priests say, go out and arrest Jesus, and the officers go out, and he slips away from them, and they come back and give him the report, but we couldn't get him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, why haven't you brought him? The officer answered, well, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Has he deceived you? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? There's a good question. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? And the answer they anticipate is what? No, but we know one who believes. Who is it? Joseph of Arimathea, but he believes secretly, right? 
So they say, does anybody else believe in him? And so the council, if he were the prophet or Messiah, we would have all believed in him. He must be deceived. Now look at verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law, common people, a curse, Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, being one of the council, he too is one of the elites, one of the 70. Look what he says when the priests and the Pharisees say that. He said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him? Are you just going to arrest him and kill him? And knows what he is doing? Then the priest and the Pharisees answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? You could, that would be like saying, Are you from, just think of the worst place in the world that you can think of. They turned on one of their own men and said, What are you, one of these followers from Galilee? <laughs> that was like slapping someone in the face. That's the way you shut them up. Search and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And they just shut Nicodemus up. But notice how Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, has defended Jesus. These are two men, good men, who believe in justice and believe that someone really deserves you know, a fair trial, which of course Jesus does not get. So go back to John chapter 19 and we'll finish up this section. And look what it says. So in, in 38, we have Joseph of Arimathea, right at the end of verse 38, came and he took the body. You see that? He took the body. Look at that verb. Took the body. Then Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, and look what he's doing. Bringing. Look. Bringing. What is he bringing? A mixture of myrrh and aloes about 100 pounds, which is about 65 and a half American pounds. These are perfuming agents. Okay? Um, every time we've seen Nicodemus, by the way, it says he comes to Jesus by night. And this is one of the themes in John's Gospel, light versus darkness. Okay? It's very important uh, in, in uh, John's Gospel, this difference between light and darkness. Nicodemus is going to have to step out of the darkness into the light. And he does it right here. He shows his true colors publicly by just bringing all these aloes and these spices in order to uh, wrap around Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea has to step out of the closet and he has to declare his intentions too. Here's two men who in a sense were secret admirers of Jesus who now have to come out publicly. And there's going to be a time when you're going to be called to come out publicly. Maybe at a crisis situation like this, we can't remain hidden believers forever. Joseph takes care of the legal affairs. He goes to Pilate. He gets the legal right to take the body. Nicodemus takes care of the commercial affairs. He goes and he brings 100 pounds of spices to wrap around Jesus' body. So that's the who. Joseph and Nicodemus. Now the what? Look at verse 40. They took the body of Jesus and they, they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews to bury. Probably had servants helping them. Jews did not embalm. They believed the body should decompose as quickly as possible. But they didn't want the odor 
would be apparent to everybody, and so they would wrap the body in all these spices. Now just think about 65 pounds of spices. That's a lot, right? Just think about when you rub uh, spices on a piece of meat. You know, you buy one of those jars of spices, a couple ounces to flavor your meat. Imagine 65 pound bags. Some of you have buy mulch, and you know you buy all kinds of things for your garden. You know what a 65 pound bag or something is? That's how much they are wrapping around Jesus' body to keep the odor down. So that's the what they're doing. Now look at the where. Look at verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which one, no one, had ever been laid. This is where we get our idea of the garden tomb. Other text says Joseph's tomb. He actually owned that particular tomb. When did they do that? Look at verse 42. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day. So this is Friday, and the Jews are preparing for the Sabbath and for the Passover feast. For the tomb was nearby. Time is short. They have to find a place to lay him quickly before sunset, before Sabbath arrives, before Passover arrives, and this is the quickest and the closest tomb. Notice they lay him there, they wrap him up. There's no expectation of a resurrection. That's important that you see that in this passage. We're going to go down some in verses in chapter 20. You need to see that there's no expectation for a resurrection. Their hopes for the kingdom of God have been dashed. These guys thought Jesus might be the Messiah. That he was going to set up the kingdom. But guess what? He ends up getting killed. Their hopes of the kingdom have been dashed. He might have been a prophet, but he wasn't the Messiah. They've had to come to that conclusion. Now, we have the Jewish authorities on one side, the Roman authorities on the other side, and they're still in control. Nothing has changed one bit in the past couple of days. They are still in control. So, they lay Jesus in the tomb, and that's where he's going to stay. Maybe later he'll be transferred to another tomb that's not, not so close to the crucifixion site, uh, and maybe somewhere else down the road. Okay, so that's scene number one. Now look at scene number two. This takes place three days later. So if you're watching the movie on the screen, it would say three days later. Okay? So here is verse one of chapter 20. Look at that. Now on the first day of the week, and that would be Sunday morning, Passover is passed. The Sabbath is passed. It's Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, that's the woman with seven demons, went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now here's that dark motif again. See that dark and light motif that we have? She's going to go and check out the burial site where they've laid Jesus. Uh, she's probably coming with some sort of... Uh, things to prepare his body for maybe to move to another location later on. We're not certain. It doesn't say that. But when she gets there, she is shocked that the tomb has been violated. Look what it says at the end of verse 20. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So what does she do? Look at verse 2. Then, when she sees that, she ran and she came to Simon Peter, lead apostle, and to the other disciple, whom we think is John, whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, 
They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Now notice the word they mentioned twice. And what does she say? They have what? Taken away. They have laid him somewhere else. They've already transferred the body. So what does she know? The body's gone. She thinks someone has moved the body. She doesn't think it's great, uh, you know, grave robbers. She thinks somebody has actually moved the body from this tomb to a more permanent tomb. She doesn't know where they did it, that they are not mentioned, but if she knows that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the ones that buried him, she may be referring to them, right? Is she thinking of a resurrection? No. She's not thinking of a resurrection. That's important that you get that. Now look at verse 3. Peter, therefore, in light of her report, went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So they're going to go and check out her report. And John brags a little bit. He said, I beat Peter. I got there first. That's what he says. They both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And how about Mary Magdalene? What's happened to her? Well, she's been left in the dust. She's exhausted from running back to the to Peter and John in the first place, and now she's probably just out of breath, and she's just going to walk back to the tomb. Okay? So watch what happens in verse 5. He, that's the first, that's John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. So he's very you know, apprehensive about going into the tomb, but he sees that there's no body there. He just sees the, the, the wrappings. Okay. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter comes. He's you know, 50 yards behind. Following him, and he, rambunctious that he is, went right into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around the head not lying, lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. This uh, handkerchief is the headband that goes under the chin to keep the jaw in place and over the top of your head. If you've seen uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol, you know what it looks like because Marley comes and he visits Ebenezer Scrooge and he has that headband around there. Why does he have that? Because he's dead. What you did to dead people put a headband around there. So, we have this headband lying there and the linen clothes. Now look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, that's John, who came first, he screws up his courage and he went in also. And he saw and he believed. Believed what? He believed Mary's report that the body was gone and they transferred it another tomb. That's what they believe. They're still not believing in the resurrection. How do I know? Because if they thought he was raised, what would they have done? Hallelujah! He's raised! Praise the Lord! They don't do any of that stuff. And I'll show you how we know this. Look at verse 9. Look what it says. 
They believed, but they only believed her, her report. For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must what? Rise again from the dead. Notice that. They don't know that it's happened because of yet. Guess what? They don't even know that scripture. That's not even a point of reference for them. See? So they're not thinking about resurrection. They just know that the body is gone. Somebody's moved it. They don't know where. Now, John's readers, remember this book was written in 95. They know he's raised, don't they? <laughs> but when the events were happening in 30, John and Peter are not aware of the resurrection. They just miss it. And uh, it's very interesting what they do next. Look at verse 10. Very interesting. Then the disciples just went away again to their own home. They just leave. They're not going to say he's raised. They don't know that he's raised. They just leave. They go back to the house. They're getting ready for the cowboy game at noon. That's what they're going to do. They're not concerned. And they leave, and here comes Mary. She's finally getting back to the tomb, you know? So she gets there, and when they leave, guess what? She stays behind. And we don't know how much time passes, but look at verse 11. Notice how it starts. But Mary. See, they just went and said, okay, we don't know what happened. They're not even interested in finding these bodies. This kingdom project is over with, as we will see later on in the book. They are just figured, well, he's dead and that's it, and we don't know where he is. But Mary stood outside the tomb, and guess what she was doing? Weeping. She was crying. What have they done to his body? See, she's not thinking of resurrection. She's weeping. She's crying. And as she wept, she stooped down, and she looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels. And notice she said, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, there's no indication that she recognized them as angels. This is John telling the story in hindsight. She looks in there, she sees two people in there, and John says they were angels. Uh, now she could have thought they were angels, but usually when a person sees an angel in the Bible, it says they feared, and the angel always has to say fear not. So she doesn't think, probably she doesn't think they're angels. But John writing, you know, 60 years later, is letting us know that they were angels there. Now look at verse 13. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because he's been raised from the dead. No. Why are you weeping? She said, because they what? Take it away, my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. That's why she is sad. That's why she's weeping. Now, when she had said this, she turned around. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Now, we don't know how long he's been standing there and observing her. But Jesus has been standing there and he's been observing her. We don't know how long. Suddenly she feels his presence and she goes, There's Jesus. But she doesn't know it's Jesus. Let me tell you something. Jesus observes us. And we don't realize that he's observing us. 
And we go on our lives as, as if nothing has happened or is happening at that point. But he's observing us. In order to know that he's observing us, guess what we have to do? In order to see him, we have to make an about face. That's called repentance in the Bible. That's the people who are sinners in order to see Jesus. But watch this. This is very interesting. So she turned around, but look what it says at the end of verse 14. She did not know that it was Jesus. And he knows it's her, but she doesn't know it's him. Why doesn't she know that it's Jesus? She turns right there, and she looks at him, and she doesn't know it's Jesus. But somebody's, I've read some commentaries that because she was crying. She had tears in her eyes. I don't think that. It's because he looks different than he did before. He's raised, but his body has been changed. It's not this, it's the same body, but a transformed body. It's a resurrected body. We don't understand any of that. But he does not look like he did before, or she would say, hey, Jesus. <laughs> and that's not the case. Now watch this. She, he talks to her. She still doesn't know it's Jesus. Now watch this. He said to her, woman, why are you weeping, and whom are you seeking? That's the same question that the angels asked back in 13. Why are you weeping? Why, who are you seeking? Same question Jesus asked the soldiers in the garden of Gethsemane when they come to arrest him. He said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus in heaven. He said, I am. And all fell backwards. Remember that? Same question. Why are you weeping? And who are you seeking? Now look at her answer. She supposing him to be the gardener. Now watch what she does. She accuses this guy. She supposing him to be the gardener. Gardener said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you laid him. And I'll take him away. I'll, I'll give him the kind of burial that he deserves. Where are you putting him? Now, logically, she sees this guy and she thinks he's a gardener. Now, I don't know what a gardener looks like. I don't know what kind of clothes he's wearing, but she somehow thinks that it's the gardener. And she says, this must be the guy who took him away. And at least he would know where the body's been taken, if nothing else, because he sort of supervises this area. Where have you taken him? Where have you laid him? She's arguing with the gardener. She's found the culprit. You know, who's behind this whole thing. So look at verse 16. So the gardener responds. He said to her, Mary. Mary. She turned and said, Rabboni! You got an explanation point after that? Which is, Teacher! Jesus said, My sheep know my voice, and I called him by name. Mary. And suddenly, her eyes are opened, and she recognizes, recognizes him as Jesus with that one word. And she goes from calling him gardener to rabbi. <laughs> Jesus knows our name, and we can hear his voice. And he calls us. He said to her, and there's a lot that goes on between 16 and 17, as you'll see. He gives her two commands. He said to her, do not cling to me, which is a negative present tense verb, which means stop clinging to me. That's a command. Stop clinging to me. Why would he have to say stop clinging to me? Because guess what she's doing? 
She's clinging to him. She's alive. She's grabbing around the ankles and she's not letting go. Stop clinging to me, he says. And he gives the reason. He says, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, I think what he's saying is, look, you don't have to cling to me. I'm not going anywhere. You know, his ascension is going to be 40 days later. He says, I'll be around. Stop clinging to me. And uh, he gives her a second command. Look what he says in verse 17. He said, command number two, go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. This is the reason he tells her not to cling. Not to cling. He says it's not time for clinging. That's what it's time for. It's time for proclaiming. And what does he ask her to proclaim? He says, number one, he says to her, tell them that I have ascended, watch this, I have ascended to my father and your father. Now, if we have the same father, if my father and Jimmy's father are the same father, then what does that make us? That makes us brethren. Look what he says there in verse 17. What does he say? Don't cling to me. I'm not yet ascended. Go and tell my what? Brethren. He now calls them brethren. Because his father is their father. That is a new family relationship that has been established. And then he says this in 17. And to my God, tell them I've ascended to my God and your God. So he's returning to God where he came from. And he calls him not only my God, but now he is your God, whom you now accept as the Father. And that's something the Jews didn't do. They didn't accept God as a personal Father. And so they have this new revelation of who God is. And that's what she's to say. Now there's a great controversy that goes on right here in verse 17 among Bible scholars. And that's the question, is when does Jesus ascend? Some Bible teachers believe that on the day of his resurrection, right here, verse 17, he tells her to stop clinging because he's going to ascend to his father. And they believe that he ascends to his father first. Right then on that day. And he carries his blood into the Holy of Holies up in heaven. And then he comes back. And now if you can touch him, you can cling to him or whatever. He comes back walks the earth for 40 days, and then he ascends for the final time. That's a stretch. And the reason it's a stretch is because if that's what happened, if he ascended on the day he rose, you would think there would be a report in either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Somebody would have said that. And they don't say that that's what happened. So I think that this most likely points to his future ascension. Because he says, go tell them I am ascending to my Father. That he will ascend to his father. I'm alive and I'm going to ascend to my father. In other words, I am keeping that promise. In my father's house are many mansions and I'm going to go. Remember that? He told him he was going to go. Go tell them I'm alive and I'm going to go to my father. Earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, Jesus asked him a question. He says this, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And he's asking that question. They didn't know how to answer 
And now he says to Mary Magdalene, go tell them I am ascending on the line. So, look what happens in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. She goes and she reports the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the apostles, at least to Peter and John, and the others if they were there. So Mary is the first person to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, God used a woman to be the first proclaimer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One way we know the story is true, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because in Bible times, especially during the times of the Roman Empire, no woman was ever cast as the hero of a story. John cast her as the hero of the story to his embarrassment. Because he looked in the tomb, he just went back home. Guess what? He could have stuck around a little longer. He could have stuck around like Mary stuck around, couldn't he? And guess what he would have seen? He would have seen the resurrected Jesus. But it's not the men who see the resurrected Jesus. It's the women and it's the men who are embarrassed. Now John doesn't tell us their reaction. Because we're going to go to the next verse. He's going to talk about Jesus appearing later on to them. But we don't get the reaction. But Luke tells us how they reacted to Mary's report. And you know what it says? It says, her words seem to them as idle tales. Sounds like a wives tale to me. We're having an hallucination. And then it says, and they did not believe her. A woman? They didn't, a woman who had seven demons? They refused to believe the report of the resurrection. Don't be surprised when you preach and teach and tell people that Jesus is alive that they're going to, that they're going to believe you. They're not going to believe you any more than those, the apostles believed. They just didn't believe her. And so guess what he's going to have to do? He's going to have to show up on sight to them before they believe. But they won't believe based on the proclamation. For them, it has to be seeing as believing. Seeing as believing. Sort of a low-level faith, isn't it? Instead of just believing the report that the woman brings back. So when we conclude this section, we have to say, okay, well, what's happened so far? Uh, let's look at the different groups. How about the apostles? Where do you put them right now? They're what? How would you describe them? Watching the cowboy game, right? Not believing. Okay. Sanhedrin. Their problem solved. They got rid of Jesus. Right? Pontius Pilate. His problem's over with. He's dismissed the body. He's cleansed his hands of the whole situation. He's not having a second thought about Jesus. The soldiers at the cross. They got their perks. They're on to a new assignment by now. Joseph and Nicodemus. They had compassion on this dead man that they thought could have been the Messiah. And they did good deeds. Mary Magdalene. There's only one person. There's a bunch. that really stands out. Mary Magdalene. She believes and she's faithful 
and goes and proclaims the resurrection to the apostles. Jesus calls her name and he says, go and tell that I'm raised. He calls our name. This is how people were called into the ministry. There was a time when God said to George Davis, George Davis, you need to be in full-time ministry. You need to preach the gospel. There was a time when I sensed that God was calling me to preach the gospel. He calls all of us by name to share the gospel where we live, whether it's full-time or whether it's part-time. And how did you believe? Have you seen Jesus with your eyes? Is that what made you believe? Or did you hear a report? I remember hearing a report that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And guess what? I believed. And with that, I was given eternal life. That's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried the third day. God raised him from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, reigning over the nations, whether they realize it or not. It's our job to call the people to realize that Jesus is raised. And one day he's coming back, setting up his kingdom on earth. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this burial section, this resurrection section. How would we have responded if Mary told us that message and we were sitting in that upper room? Help us to realize, Lord, that these were men. The stories sounded fantastic. And many of us, the first time we heard the gospel, we didn't believe either. But Lord, you ended up transforming their hearts and they did believe. And the Christian revolution began and we're part of it. Thank you, Lord, that you touched our hearts. You called us by name. You wrote our name in the book of life. You've given us salvation. Now help us to share the gospel with others that they might find eternal life through Christ.